We've had me too. Now we have this dumb fuck, Doug Ford. Already he is changing Ontario for the worst, reverting the sex ed curriculum to a time when Napster was all the rage. He canceled increased education on indigenous issues in schools. What the fuck's next? Birthdays? He needs to be stopped and we need to move beyond awareness. We need fucking action. So support the work being done by us, your resident feminist diehard bitches for initiatives like Orders Up, our clapback against the restaurant industry's culture of sexual harassment and support a podcast that has your feminist back. Check us out at patreon.com slash bad and bitchy to support independent intersectional feminist media as we form the resistance against Doug Ford. Stay woke, stay bitchy. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erin. I'm Erica. And I'm Amy. And we're recording an early morning pod. <laughs> Do you hear? I'm hating it right now. <laughs> but I Aaron's know, been up for like four hours. I know. <laughs> no, I only got up at seven. It's oh, that's, 8.15 that's right very now. respectable. Me too. I mean, my alarm went off, like started going off early because it's a gradual alarm. Yeah. So I finally got out of bed at like 6.57. Nice. So compared to like when I get up for work, it's a sleep in. Yeah. There you so. go. Erica. I <laughs> got up like 10 minutes before Amy showed up. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. Um, we're beating the heat. It's going to be like a fucking scorecard. Yeah, we're beating the heat. And uh, these are the first words we've spoken out loud all day. Yes. In an hour. <laughs> yeah, Except my hi, Amy. <laughs> yeah. These are some very, very fresh takes. Fresh out of the bakery oven. Listen, I've got pastries. It's fine. Yeah, You've got coffee. Perfect. I... I thank you for the coffee because, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not sure how this would have gone so, down. So instead of being fueled by wine, we're fueled by coffee and sleep deprivation. Well, so you know what? It's a whole different type of pod. Different like who knows <laughs> is all I have to say. All right. Let's get into it. So this week in feminism, we're going to start with a story I'm sure that most of you have heard about. Um, when this is the story of the black man who was shot and killed in his apartment by his white female neighbor. So if you haven't heard, uh, let's quickly recap. So on September 6th, 30-year-old Amber Geiger, a Dallas police officer, entered the apartment of her neighbor by accident. Upon seeing its rightful resident, 26-year-old Botham Jean, in his apartment, she figured that he was an intruder and shot him twice, therefore killing him. In Geiger's version of the story, which has been called into question by two witnesses, she claims that she mistook Jean's apartment for her own and that she believed that there was a burglar in her home and when she saw her front door ajar. Geiger said the apartment was dark, which is why she was unable to recognize that she was not in her own home and said she shot Jean because he had ignored her, quote, verbal commands. After shooting him, uh, only after shooting him and then turning on the lights, she claims did she come to realize that she was in the victim's home. <gasps> the two witnesses heard someone in, someone in the hallway knock on the door before shooting, and one witness says they heard a woman say, let me in, let me in, before the gunshots. And one claims she heard a man's voice yell out, oh my God, why did you do that after the shooting? 
Geiger is facing a manslaughter charge and is released on $300,000 in bail. It's said that she could actually face a more severe charge, as she fucking should. And now Fox News, the totally unbiased, non-propaganda news outlet, is trying to paint Jean as the villain in this scenario, says, heaven forbid, the police on marijuana in his apartment. So, uh, Erica, apparently black people can't even, you know, live in their own houses. Okay, here's my problem with this entire thing, okay? Well, I have many problems, but... The uh, reporting or the whole story? The Just the whole story. If she didn't know... Okay, let me, let me accept for the sake of argument that she, she mistook Jean's apartment for her own. Why is she giving verbal commands? Like, do you walk into your house mm-hmm. and say, hey, get out of my... I don't understand. Well, my, my, I imagine it's because she saw the door ajar and she said, was like, yeah. she was like, well, I'm a police officer. So she probably went, Dallas police, like, Why come out, you hands up. Why would you have your door ajar if it's your house? Well, she's assuming she someone broke, intru- yeah. broken. That, that's no, her, but that's I'm, her argument. Like, her... Okay, so her door was ajar. Yes. She's okay, thinking okay. she walked... She, her story, and let's be clear, it's her story. It's not clear that this is actually what happened. But her alibi was that she... Or not alibi, but her, her rationale was that she thought it was her unit. So I guess she lived a floor above or a yeah, door over. Yeah, so she wasn't over. even on the right floor. Yeah, I think she was a floor above. Not even on the right floor, which actually I've totally done before. I've put my keys into, like, the wrong apartment. I did this know. twice on vacation. Oh, my God. So embarrassing. But... I mean, you know, I wasn't armed, so it all worked out fine. But no, she walked up to the door. <laughs> but and were thought, you sober? Yeah. No, I'm just like really flighty. Um, <laughs> the door was slightly ajar and she thought there was an intruder. So you think there's someone in your, like, in your like home. You are supposed to, like, when police are called, when there's a break and enter, they, that's how they walk in. Yeah. But that's not what was happening. Like, based on the witnesses who heard, which I don't think anyone, if you hear that kind of screaming and the banging... I don't know why any witness would lie about that. I know why she might want to lie and like revise her story. But it sounds like she was banging on the door and she may have still thought it was her apartment and that she'd locked herself out or or but I don't know why she'd bang on the door. She lived so, alone, I think. It's so weird. Yeah, you can't it's bang on a door and have a door ajar. So then there's but like had also, to be some kind of and this door jar is really sticking in my craw. Oh, that'll be like they'll make it, like it, a Netflix uh, like series really about is, whether or not listen, the door was a jar. Sarah Koenig is it'll be called a jar and <laughs> it'll be like the staircase. The, pe- <laughs> the people's story. Yeah. This is going to be serial season four. Yeah, seriously. 100%. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just got. Um, I was like, "Ooh, yeah, season three is." The subreddits will be wild. Yeah. People will be like um, going back to so, the. So, but the other thing is that the victim Jean had a red doormat in front of his door, mm-hmm. and she doesn't have a doormat. So, like, it's yeah. Also, what was her deal? Was she drunk? I think that's what people were saying. It. I remember reading that at unclear. first. Unclear, but it's funny now that we're talking about he had marijuana in his home. Also, like, but like the most like docile drug you could ever like be on. Not that he there, was high, and not that that's even relevant. But but like yeah, Fox News is trying to paint him as this like black thug. Violent, Heaven forbid yeah. he have fucking drugs. I'm yeah. sorry. Are you telling me that literally no Republican or person who watches Fox News of any age has ever smoked marijuana That's in not their the entire point. life? That's not the point. I know, but I'm just They're saying. They're the right like, kind of people to do it. It's like the wealthy whites who are like getting rich off marijuana well, thug, like legalization. Well, thug is just a euphemism for niggers, so. Sure. <laughs> sorry, people. It's early and I have no filter. <laughs> you don't have a filter I on your best days. Yeah, that's true. Well, 
what people should be afraid of is drunk white ladies. Drunk yeah. white ladies okay. scare the shit al- out of me. I, I, I am afraid but of this drunk is also white ladies. I'm afraid of 20-year-old white kids. question I'm, yeah. is, like, if she was drunk, what made her think that she could operate a firearm? Aside from the fact that she's a police officer. She's a cop, but and like, they are all, dr- like, they're... Drunk is, on power. <laughs> they're <laughs> drunk <laughs> on power. <laughs> There's also an issue of alcoholism among officers that i feel like should not go unignored here and then of course like them backing her up uh the like his so the man who died uh botham john's uh family has hired a a lawyer to represent them and they're saying that and it looks like they're going to go after the police department because when investigators got there they were the ones who were like looking through his apartment to find uh, drugs or other like evidence of other things because cops cover for cops right Mm -hmm. i guess i wonder she like got charged <laughs> i mean because the poor little white lady must be protected at all <laughs> fucking costs i mean that, I, I think that of course they were gonna charge her but i'm you know part of me is still like oh this is just they couldn't not charge it's her. true they could have planted the gun in some other way or been yeah. like in some weird shit all i can, I all I can think about right now is could have like, moved the body up one extra floor and actually pretended like he died in her apartment but all i'm thinking about is like in chicago and they're like they both reach for the gun oh yeah yeah, yeah. plant it well <laughs> the planting <laughs> planting the toy guns on kids right it's a common okay tactic. yes i was like what <laughs> like, yeah that's a thing it sounds I, so made up but it's baltimore been corruption chart it's like, in case? different it's in different jurisdictions too that that's been known to happen oh yeah. my yeah, it's god so do someone want to like explain that a little bit mm. you can you just read it oh it's right so um <laughs> so baltimore's going through a corruption or the baltimore police story is going through a corruption trial involving eight members of their elite gun trace task force and it has revealed that a handful of baltimore cops allegedly kept fake guns in their patrol cars to plant on innocent people just in case they shot an unarmed suspect. So they have a contingency plan for shooting innocent people who are most likely black. And kids, like the toy gun thing is like especially um, fucked up. Like the, like, Tamir Rice yep. story and I was just thinking about yeah. Tamir Rice, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, no, it's it's it should trouble everyone and there needs to be so much more oversight over actually um, the RCMP apparently is going through corruption a corruption investigation too. So I don't know the details of that in terms of it wasn't exactly clear beyond <laughs> I don't know whatever it mm-hmm. is but the point is is that um it seems like <laughs> kaepernick wasn't wrong well we knew that already yeah um i just want to make two comments the first is that if you look at amber geiger's uh, mugshot she totally looks like fucking linda who's gonna ask for the manager like, <laughs> yeah she does 100 percent. um the second thing is is that i was listening to another podcast <laughs> earlier this week because that's like, apparently all i do and uh, they were saying that um their family is a big military family and that uh, the father um, who was in the Marines said that the problem with a lot of the police departments is that like they don't get adequate training. And so he said, you know, part of the Marines is like they have this like bond, this relationship. And what they do is effectively they train any sort of bias out of you through like, I mean, obviously abuse. 
but mm. um break them down to build them exactly back up. exactly yeah. so that like what police officers need to go through is they need to go through training that requires them to break down any internal biases mm-hmm. so which is not going to happen with just like oh here's a training session on bias yeah well, oh. yeah well the idea that she would like the, her whole training it seems is definitely well i mean her story is off um and i'm I'm not even sure why she was there or what was going on but but even if like based on her own story it's fucked up that she would think there's an intruder say didn't follow commands but wasn't coming at her and then shoot shoot to kill which is like really fucked up well it was black and it It was was dark but but to say that it was so dark that she like couldn't tell she wasn't in her own apartment but also not too dark that she couldn't tell he wasn't adhering to her commands or coming because at her. light would naturally come in from the hallway, li- illuminating the entryway in which you'd be like, "Oh, this is weird." I don't There's live a red here. mat here. <laughs> I don't live here. That's bizarre. Yeah, I don't have a table there. That's, yeah. that's usually where I put my keys. Yeah. Well, and and it's also her na- like it's her neighbor. She presumably would have like known what he looked like or seen him. So there were also like two instances where like there were some noise complaints about Jean um, in the, like that day or the day before. Mm. Um, it's not clear who they were from. So I wonder if she if maybe there was music playing or something. Well, th- that's um, what makes me think it's actually intentional. Like yeah. she went looking for him. Yeah. Let's talk about noise complaints, <laughs> shall we? <laughs> and being noisy and loud. Mm-hmm. Um, First off. You know, I don't know what it is with um, white people and the need for absolute silence around them, but it's fucking oppressive. It really is. I'm so tired of these noise complaints. And like they like people will call white people will call the cops on anything that inconveniences them. And that is my problem. And it usually comes to the point where who knows what will happen after that once the police are called. And I just, I I find it just another way to impose whiteness in a space. So I have a question. So like, is there ever an appropriate time to file a noise complaint only because like, I feel like there are acceptable hours where like, you know, yeah, the bylaw by- set, by- set hours, yeah. but like, you know, I'm willing to forgive a little bit on like a weekend um, because it's the weekend. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, the other night I was trying to go to bed and my neighbors have a rooftop patio and I have new neighbors across the street. And guess what? They're fucking students. They were out on that outdoor patio till one thirty. Mm hmm. Mine too. Screaming. Next door. Screaming. Yeah, the they problem were singing is, Backstreet Boys, which you know was what? just as terrible. The problem is the out, like the way the sound carries outside is a is another issue. Yeah. So like, um, is so is it just like, oh, you're being too noisy in the day, and that's not acceptable, and that's oppressive, or is it just any sort of? It's just it gets to the point where it's just like anything that's inconvenient. Here, here's the problem: whether or not you call like bylaw is like has different meaning and different bearing on who the people you're calling are like cops will show up at like certain hours where it's not bylaw officers don't show up so if it's really late it's actually police officers so if you're calling police officers on racialized people you are kind of implicated now should shit happen because you're like inviting like 
that oppressive violence into their like life and you kind of have to like weigh the benefit of that noise complaint being addressed but if it's before a certain hour bylaw officers will come which i mean like it's like 1 a.m or something after that it's like police who roll up and if it's bylaw officers i mean it, the noise has to be to a certain threshold so it more it, it's actually like pretty hard to establish like a noise violation i know because i've tried and <laughs> they haven't caught me once so. but but this is the thing um in 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 none of our like can we attempt to knock on the door and just say hey something like it's it's 1 30 in the morning and your backstreet boys is just not yeah, or right or now. go the next like day. Like we don't like the best way to do it is not to escalate the situation, right, especially right. if it's like drunk people right. who are partying. So maybe they're not going to be responsive. So maybe later, like yeah, maybe like the next next, day, next morning, over. you say you go say something. Yeah. Like for me, um, I was it was I think it was a sat a Friday night or a Saturday night, and I was like, you know what, let them have their fun. It happened once. Yeah, it was it was Labor Day weekend. Yeah. I was like, all right, you know, totally. I just, I, for me, if it was a continuous thing, then that's a different mm-hmm. issue, right? And you're right. It, why shouldn't we address these things ourselves instead of inviting like yeah, why are we calling law, law enforcement or pseudo law enforcement? It's like, we don't want to talk to each other. Yeah. So we need law enforcement to come in and, you know, talk to other people. And maintain for our us. isolation. Yes. And like, yes. Yeah. And I that, mean, I hate people. And that isolation. <laughs> There's a, I, but I, that I, isolation yeah. is elitist. Mm-hmm. It really is. This idea that you don't have to, um, it, like, actually talk to other people that you don't know because your castle is your castle and you pay mm-hmm, taxes mm-hmm, and you mm-hmm. are entitled. Yeah. And that is, I feel like That's it's the that, root of it for that sure. That is the root of it. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> <laughs> I had to get that off my chest. Yeah, no, I think it's totally fair. And I think it's kind of the same situation as if like anyone who's calling the manager or what have you, particularly when it's, a, it's all entitlement. Mm-hmm. And like there are, I don't, I'm not saying that there aren't legit reasons to like ask for the manager or whatever, but you know, just because you have someone talks in a way that you doesn't, isn't the same as you right. doesn't mean that it's wrong. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Well, say that again, Aaron. So just because someone talks in a different way than you doesn't mean that it's wrong. Exactly. If they use, if they're outright rude and disrespectful, that's a different issue. Exactly. Exactly. Anyway. So you guys, I have some good news. Uh, U.S. Congress is finally paying their interns. Hmm. Uh, They recently passed a bipartisan bill that would appropriate funds for congressional interns to be paid. The organization, a nonprofit, Pay Our Interns, successfully lobbied Congress to, well, I guess pay its interns. And uh, the organization's broader mandate is to advocate for an increase in the amount of paid internships within government, for-profit, and nonprofit sectors. POI serves as a research platform, advocacy guide, and internship database for students across the country. I couldn't decide if I was going to say database or database, (laughs) and I said a weird amalgamation of the two. (laughs) That was awkward. Anyway, so following the passage of this bill, POI will be launching an initiative to recruit youth from across the country, and in particular, underrepresented communities to apply and get a paid internship on the Hill. This announcement comes on the heels of a New York Times story about how the U.S. House of Representatives is becoming increasingly diverse. Sure. Um, (laughs) Okay. But uh, all the staffers are white. 
these are the same staffers who are drafting federal policies, prioritizing issues for budgets, and more or less shaping their boss's view of Congress and, well, everything. So according to research from the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies, just 13.7% of top staff members in the House are people of color. Compare that with 38% of the country and 23% of House representatives. Uh, there are only two black House Republicans in the House, and there are 43 House Democrats who have a floor vote and are black, as well as two non-voting black Democrats. So those are the reps from D.C. because D.C. doesn't get a vote. Sure, I have a lot of feelings. Uh, yeah, me too. Um, nearly a quarter of top Democratic staff members are people of color compared with less than 5% of Republican staff. But when the official offices of non-white lawmakers are removed from consideration, the diversity of the staffs working for white Republicans and white Democrats is similar. Researchers counted 329 white lawmakers and found that only 16, six Democratic and 10 Republican, had offices led by a non-white chief of staff. Damn. Yeah. Quite shocking. Mm -hmm. Oh, do tell us. I, well, who else can afford to work that, those hours for free? Exactly, exactly. Unpaid internships are... are Discriminatory. Discriminatory, yeah. and they attract a certain type of person. One type of person. It's no wonder we only get one type of thought. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. only, like, we only get one set of policies, one type of thought. All this talk about innovation needs to begin with the actual people who are not only we talk a lot about decision makers here but gatekeepers and gatekeepers but let's talk about who is next in line and those are usually the interns the um assistants whatever and the protégés the the protégés yeah exactly and they have already cemented their trajectory yep through that and their trajectory is the next um the next set of those decision makers and gatekeepers so where is this innovation coming from where is this diversity of thought coming from where Mm because it can't come from the same old people who have the same economic imperatives like it just can't so i mean as much as we talk about diversity the whole damn system needs a rewrite in my opinion well, and even for folks there who are uh, racialized and doing internships for free, they're still coming from a certain socioeconomic class. Because yes. there's no way you can live in D.C. and work for free unless you've, like, saved. And, I, I mean, I've done that. I was an intern at the Canadian Embassy in D.C. And D.C. is run on interns. Like, every yes. organization is staffed with interns every think tank has interns every lobby group has interns and every not-for-profit is run by interns and, and it's not just the hill every yep, embassy absolutely. has an internship program and none of them pay because that's the, like there's a there's a workaround for that and you it's not even that you have to get credits to do unpaid work it just is so you are not getting school credits which is something that we have at least as a protection here in ontario um, but you're you're not getting anything but the the experience, quote unquote, and it creates not just like a lack of uh, diversity and perspectives or like um, you know 
perpetuating uh, certain uh, opportunities for the same folks, but it also leads to exploitation because people are so beholden to their employers for yeah. this like yeah. opportunity. They can't uh, they can't necessarily like you know leave they feel that they're like you're, you're told that you're so blessed to be there and all this sort of thing um and you don't have the same like workplace rights either you can't like you know falcon i mean you, you can sue but like you have no means right even if you like except for folks coming from from wealthier backgrounds so like if you save up and scrounge like i rented when i lived in dc in like 2010 I paid a thousand dollars a month to rent a room in someone's house, like just the bedroom. Oh yeah, like I couldn't use the rest of the house. It's very oh in like gosh, a sketchy yeah. part of town. Yeah, because actually a lot of like DC is like a little, still a little bit around the capital, still a little bit like unsafe in terms of that. Yeah. There's still active gun violence. Yeah, sure. Eastern Market yeah. and like that Eastern Market area, isn't yeah. like that anymore. No, I know it's just 2000. If you go into like the southeast, yeah, it's yeah. gentrified a lot, like over those periods of time. Well, but, like yeah, I yeah. saw a couple of shootings <laughs> when I lived there, but that's all, which is to say, like, there's still like I'm not living in Georgetown, right? Like, no. where like the rents are even like more out there, or like also, so here's Georgetown's the, the worst. Whatever. So here's here's the question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. if these people are the people who are eventually going to craft policy, what mm. does that say about labor laws? And well, there and the normalization of not being paid. Do you know what I mean? So if you're working as an intern unpaid, I don't see later you having this like. I mean, this movement is coming from some interns. So like the pay your intern program mm-hmm. is coming from past interns. And there are a lot mm-hmm. of. Uh, there's the same thing happening now with the UN. The UN internships, of which there are very many across yeah. all UN departments, are uh, all unpaid. Yes, and they are. talk about being costly. Like no matter where you're living in the world, but especially Geneva, it is like Geneva. Obs- yeah, it's. I had, I had to go you, back to and Paris. New York, yeah, I had to go back to Paris where it was cheap. Geneva okay, expensive as Geneva fuck. is yeah. insane. It's like fifteen dollars yeah. for a Starbucks. For so Starbucks, could you imagine being an unpaid intern and living in Geneva? Yo, no. I was in Geneva in 2011, and um, I was staying with somebody, so I had room and board. And I was like, "Fuck this!" I I spent like a few days in Geneva. I'm like, "All right, I've seen Geneva because it only mm-hmm. takes a couple days." Let's mm-hmm. be honest. And I'm like, "All right, I'm out of here because mm-hmm. this place is bleeding me dry." Yeah. Um. Also. A lot of the financial institutions too. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so same in same in DC. The the like yeah the World Bank and so IMF all hire. Not only that, work. but like the I had a friend in um, who was from New Zealand, and I met her when I was living in London, and she spent a year at an un- unpaid internship at J.P. Morgan. Mm-hmm. I think Goldman Sachs had like a really prominent unpaid intern. They yeah. made still like it's yeah. wild. Yeah, exactly. And she had to work two jobs mm-hmm. in addition to her full time internship at an investment bank. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's super. Because, you know, they're not working 40 hours. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's they're working plus. like. Yeah, well, yeah. 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 Like like lawyer, like mm-hmm. legal hours well it's just disgusting and then the thing is because that's the only entry-level work is unpaid internship work people end up doing uh, back-to-back internships Mm -hmm. like so most interns will have actually worked you know two to three 
instances unpaid, unpaid interns over multiple years because employers have done away with um, providing meaningful entry-level work and they've also ab like seem to think that it's not their responsibility to train new workers which it, it is in any employment or labor law regime I've noticed that too that, actually yeah the mm. the laws I mean I think it's true the world over it's like a basic tenant of employment laws that the employer pays for your training but for some reason employers have internalized this idea that they shouldn't have to yeah I know it shocks a lot of people that that's the thing but that wow. is actually the law right so you start out and you're working they say we got to train you up for that's, a month wait or a minute, two that's an illegal framework law like it's a, it's the employment access that the employer pays to train people hmm. so let's say you have to be you you start out and you need like two weeks of training before you can start working in any job working on the line at a plant working you know in an, in an investment bank you you'll probably need a couple weeks of training the employment law says you hire someone you have to pay for the training for the first two weeks or for the first month sometimes the training is six months that's you so something brutal. really technical that's the employer has to pay you for that training if you change jobs and that requires new training the training is the expense of the employer but this workaround that employers have now is this idea that you you do an unpaid internship for the experience uh, that way they don't have to train people down the line or they sort of like think that they're getting around that. It's bullshit and we sh the people should be filing complaints and should be writing to um, but the Ministry of yeah. Employment and Labor to complain about any internship program that they see that does that. I mean, in Canada, there has been a lot of work done by also interns and, and I was going to say same thing with the UN. There's a, there is a movement among UN interns uh, to get them paid and compensated fairly I think it's going to be a lot harder to do in the UN. Like the laws in Geneva are like really lax because they're like placating to this, you know, to, to the UN and they want them yeah. to kind of mm -hmm. whatever. Um, so it's it's apparently like quite bad there. And even the wages they pay uh, UN uh, staff is at, is not um, on par with cost of living in Geneva, which is really upsetting. And, and I'm sure same is true in New York. But um you know, in Canada, there is also Canadian Internship Association, which I was part of for a long time and, and trying to advocate for changing the laws here. And, you know, the, the big loophole that we have is that you can do unpaid internships, but for credit, for university credit. That's what we have mm -hmm. in Ontario. Yep. In, some, in some provinces and federally, that's not the case. You can just do unpaid work yeah. regardless. Um, but in Ontario, there's at least you have to get credit. But even that's fucked up because... You know, there's you're still in an employer-employee relationship. It's not the power and, and you, relationship. Yeah, you can't. You know, you're well, not coming in and out, and, and you're producing work that they make money off of. Yes, you're work producing, product. Yeah. You're producing for them. Yeah. So why yeah. can they, you know, use what you're you're creating and make bank off it, and then you get you don't see any part of that? And the credits are one thing. But that's the credits are not in lieu of you doing work. The credits are for like your future. Well, they're well. for you. They're from the like they're from what you're drawing out of the experience. Right. They don't speak to, you know, being compensated for what you're giving to the employer. So how did we get here? We were just talking about how um, no, in terms of how did we allow for how did we allow right, this right. to happen? Interns. Exactly. Because First of all, we don't like I think part of it is just because I mean, particularly in instances like government and like newsrooms um, and in media, people just don't have the money to pay people and they have to cut and they have to 
reduce their budgets. And so, but they, the amount of work still stays the same. That you know, they, the newspaper still has to put out an issue. They still have to get all of the content, but they have fewer people to do it, and they can only work so many hours legally. And okay, well, how can we do it? Oh, well, you know what? We can probably take advantage of freelancers. We can probably take advantage of people and call them interns and not pay them for exposure. But that's mm-hmm. only recently, though. Well, in I, terms of the last since probably about 10, 2010 or something sure, like last that. Before that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Can I tell you uh, the, the one quick anecdote from the uh, Slate Slow Burn podcast, the season two on the impeachment? Okay, y'all in your podcast. Yeah, like, you, but you I, should I, listen. It's, it, it's pretty good, actually. It's a good but, one. but Every what time I, you guys mention one, I'm like, what are you talking okay, about? Okay, so Slow Burn is a podcast on Slate. The second season deals with the Clinton impeachment. And the one thing that stru- a story that I hadn't ever heard that struck me from that was that um, Monica Lewinsky had been working in the White House as a paid staffer um, at, at one point. And then when Congress shut down, there was a Congress shutdown, like the Republicans refused to, to open the, or I guess they didn't pass the appropriations bill and then there was like a shutdown, whatever. So there was no money flowing in to like operate any of the budgets for the White House. And so then they were like, okay, well, let's just call in a bunch of people and hire them as unpaid interns and like move them into like because they could only do like to do core administration stuff and everything else. No one was working. All the offices were shut down. And so Monica Lewinsky was hired as part of that to work as an unpaid intern like for Clinton in the Oval and like or at least proximate to the Oval. And that's when they first met. Mm-hmm. And it's like just like the. You know, anyway, just like the exploitative and then you get into the exploitative nature of like that kind of like relationship and dynamic and like whatever. But it's like, oh, that's so weird. But yeah, I mean, budgets and constraints are definitely part of it. And it is a bit bit more of a recent phenomenon. But I think it's it's not just that it's employers and businesses and corporations and governments wanting to avoid the like real costs of, of doing business and the real costs of labor. And there's um, they're incentivized not to value it and prioritize it because of the system that we're in. Also because of the like number of new grads that we have and like more and more um, educated people, degree inflation, more folks out in the market who are able to work. That's a part of it as well. But you I know, there's no reason Goldman it. Sachs mm. isn't like, or JP Morgan don't have money to hire interns. The, a big one in Canada was Bell, which had this huge internship program that, because of a suit that was brought by former interns in that program, was actually shut down because they weren't like it was actually in violation of, of the law. And now they, I believe now they do have a pay program, but I'm, I'm not certain. Either way, it was shut down as an unpaper. But like the Bell Media and certainly has money to do it. They just choose to maintain the profit margins that they have and maintain the wages of people at the top and don't want to pay for the labor of of folks on the other end who are coming in. I don't know how people at the top are getting even getting bonuses from Bell because that's the shittiest company on the <laughs> face of the earth. Like, I'm just you like, you could say that about so many, so companies many in companies Canada. that thank you. And perhaps, perhaps part of the problem is. We need to rethink these fee structures, first of all, or these pay structures, not fee structures, pay. Mm -hmm. Because the, you know, after reading The Economist for a long time, Mm. which I don't anymore. Yeah, same. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Solidarity. In competitive (laughs) debating, The Economist was the quote unquote Bible. The Bible. Because it was the most comprehensive of like world politics. Right. I haven't touched it in years. Me neither. Me neither. For, for, 
because they write shit too Mm -hmm. and they i feel like publications like that are responsible for this bullshit way of thinking so i remember reading the economist they made this argument for these obscene ceo pay pay structures and the argument is well you have to attract the best talent and if you don't attract the best talent then you know you're you're putting like hundreds or thousands of jobs or is and i'm just like but they're not talented mm-hmm. because I can tell by their output. Mm-hmm. So at what point do did we just like get rid of actual performance and and just accept the CEO as God Emperor? Mm-hmm. I, I just don't understand. And why is the CEO also the chairman of the board? Isn't that a conflict yeah. of yeah, interest? There should be a lot more separation, but people have yeah, started to uh and they I mean it comes to there is a huge deifying these days of, of CEOs. And I, it's w- disgusting. It's the, the, how people thought about Steve Jobs, how people think about Jeff Bezos. And, and, and Steve Jobs used to treat people like shit, too. He was yep. a terrible employer. He yeah. was a terrible boss. Yeah. He may have been a visionary, but he was an asshole. Sure. And I don't understand. But, but as a public, we, yeah, we, we deify we, like these people. We put them on such a huge pedestal. and we uh, Corporate sycophants. Yeah. I, I, I can't even with them. I mean, so this is the other thing. So when I was talking about just, you know, the normalization of this, there's like a section of corporate sycophants who are who all want to be CEO, who have all Mm -hmm. been promised the corner office and will swallow anything they need to to get there and then justify it. And my problem is, is that eventually they start making the rules. Mm -hmm. That's my problem. Yeah, so I, I want to kind of pull it back to this idea that of the gatekeepers because um, in this upcoming election in November, the Democrats actually are running the most diverse in terms of race and gender slate of candidates that they've ever run. I'm excited. Um, so do we have any hope that, it, should these people be elected, that the makeup of their offices will be different or are we just going to Well, who's that team this? now is the question. Because I'm Mostly guessing that they would supplant, like, they probably would bring a sure. team with them, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we assume that they're going to be like more a more diverse kind of. Well, it depends staff, on who's set on of it. staffers in the in Congress. Like, I don't know. I think so. I think considering the politics of these people too is yeah. a factor. Yeah. So it's not just that they're like more quote unquote diverse. It's like the if we're talking about like the same block of of uh, like at least the Democrat on the Democratic side, it's like folks who do have um, a more uh, social justice view of things and more of an equity lens to the work that they do and the way they've run their campaigns from the graphic designers who've done their poster work to like, so I, I don't think that, the, you know, to the to their campaign pay managers. So I think that that certainly will follow because it's part of the politics. And I think this is a new um, kind of, politic where you 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 walk the talk in a in a way where i think in the past to get by you had to probably and it's it's not like necessarily to disparage folks from previous generations who probably came in and felt like their offices need to look like other places or may have had the democratic party tell them you should hire so and so because you know they will set you up or they will help you um, kind of elevate the work that you're doing or get you the respect you need from old school Washington yeah, folks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, whereas yeah. I think the new crop may be like, yeah, that's maybe true, but I want my own people. I'm not going to yeah. take that. Mm-hmm. And usually, usually 
I, I would assume that like teams are pretty much transferred because, you know, that's who you worked with. You know their work. You trust them. If they want to move to D.C. If you. they want to yeah. move to D.C., of course. Because they could also work in the consent office. That's yeah. true. Yeah, but yeah. So I'm hoping so. Um, I'm hoping that um, the staff. I saw actually, wasn't it um, when, you know, Kamala Harris was in the Senate. The people behind them yeah, are yeah. the staffers, yeah, right? Because yeah. I, I saw yeah, her staffer yeah. was a black guy. Yeah, yeah. For and, sure. you know, my guess is that they've been together for maybe, maybe a while. Maybe not. Or, but either way, like, yeah. Yeah, she's 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 walking yeah. the walk yeah. is basically yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. And it doesn't yeah. have to be people from their same teams either. There are obviously a lot of great political operatives who are maybe even, you know, doing this work that they can come on to. Yeah, there's I people do, who I just like only work on campaigns yeah. and they go from yeah. campaign to campaign. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, fair. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, but I think that's definitely, uh, uh, I mean, the, the numbers, like just the, the stats you read out at the top definitely speak to that becoming, um, like speak to that trend. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, stay tuned for Rent and Receipts. <laughs> Now we're moving on to rent and receipts. It's where we each bring a story to share with the others and probably, you know, talk shit about it. Cool. So let me go first. Um, (laughs) So I wanted to um, kind of take a little bit of time to talk about something that I'm sure has been very divisive for people in my Canadian labor community may may not have hit your air pages. Um, and uh, taking a bit of a controversial stand here. So there is a video that circulated uh, last weekend that was put out by Unifor um, as part of a uh, strategy to address the use of scab labor uh, on a work site that's uh, been locked, where workers have been locked out for 597 days. So they've been Holy. locked out of their workplace since December 2016, which is really wild. So... This is a work site in Gander, Newfoundland, where um, you know the Unifor local, uh, you know, represents folks who do aerospace. Uh, they're like aerospace workers. They were, um, I assume they work on um, a line, but f- and for this company that's based out in Kansas, it has like these really vile sort of like anti-union tactics. Um, Kansas, where they're based, um, it actually is a right to work state, so. Um, you know, they have very weak labor laws. Um, and I think this company seems to want to ins- assert that same that same sort of thing here. Um, a lockout is essentially like they came at an impasse in, uh, in bargaining of a collective agreement. And, um, you know, to the same extent that uh, employees could choose to go on strike, an employer could lock out employees from the work site to kind of uh, leverage some power in the bargaining relationship. Um, it's pretty fucked up that it's gone on for two years. It's, it's very upsetting, but Unifor put out a video, um, on, uh, social media, uh, that they tweeted out, shared pretty widely showing scab workers. So scab workers are worker replacement workers who come and work, uh, and continue to operate the, the works work site and do the duties of otherwise we, of the unionized workers while they're out on strike or lockout. It is really shitty. 
uh, to be a scab worker. It's terrible. No one should ever be a scab worker. You should never cross a picket line because to do that actually prolongs the strike. So because this company is able to bring in replacement workers, scabs, to work the jobs of the unionized workers, they have no incentive to end the lockout. And in fact, they're hiring these people at like really low rates. So it's actually a disgusting tactic. There should be laws that limit the employer's ability or in fact, probably ban it altogether from being able to use replacement workers during these periods or use them only for very essential roles. But as it stands, you can hire people to cross the picket line and come in and work for you. So that's that's the basics. I feel like I have to explain that. But here's the problem. And this is where shit's getting weird. Unifor makes this video that takes it takes the images of the scab workers walking across the line and posts it with their names and faces and shares it on social media. A stark thing you'll notice if you look at the video is that all of the folks in this who are the scab workers are all racialized people. I was they're just all, they're about all to yeah say. Or, or like women mostly. Mm -hmm. There's like one white man in the bunch. And then you see the picture of the uniform folks and there's all white dudes. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So that's the context in which this is happening. And oh, I think to I ignore that, that context. I think to ignore that Ooh. is really Ooh. fucked up. And this is Gander. So it's a small, smaller town, right? At where they're, you know, so th like that's the, that's the context which is happening. It's going to be really difficult for these people to find other work. Um, this is one of the few things that's probably available to them to do. And, it's pretty sad that that like that's the situation that those those folks find themselves in the reality like in the critique is coming from folks who um, are like initially saw the video and said, well, we were naming and shaming people um, on social media. You're inviting people to go, then go and threaten them online, harass them online, maybe even harass them in person because, again, they're in this small community where they could be easily found and, and whatever else. And, of course, then people come to the defense of Unifor. This is a the, the right to publish videos and names of scab workers has actually been affirmed by the Supreme Court. So unions are allowed to use that as a tactic. But I think, it, like, to me, the real problem is you're, you are inviting, if not condoning. Like, shaming is one thing. But violence and harassment and it's psychological doxing. harassment are to is, is very different. It is very real. And you have to be especially ignorant not to understand that this is that you are complicit now yeah. in the harm of these of these unfortunately replacement workers instead of addressing the issue of the fact that the employer is using replacement workers and lobbying for legal reforms that would would prevent that from happening or or using other tactics it's been two years i get it but like that and that should be there's a great plea like the problem isn't the problem really is the employer doing this it's not these folks who have no other option I get that they are they are part of it, like to some extent, and I I appreciate that there the history of um, unions having a right to respond to scab labor and like do it like, but then the shaming happens at the picket line, and like they're you know yeah. and. And the same way that you wouldn't condone violence on the picket line, although it does happen, but like, you know, you can boo people, you can do whatever. And I think that is more fine. It's at least contained to that situation. But like the fact that 
to do it so broadly and broadcast it so wide with the names and faces of people who, again, are also coming from marginalized communities or don't have, you know, other work opportunities in this small community. I think it's really troubling that people were on Twitter being like, here's the Indeed website and look at all the jobs available in Gander. And like most of them like require degrees and shit like that. I mean, well, there's people just like dumb. no appreciation for the, the w- <laughs> like they are workers also. You know, like, like that, that's dumb. Yeah. So, you know, like, don't, don't like, <laughs> God, people. Um, here's my, here's one of, my, this is when you were talking, this is what I was thinking. I was thinking that the white labor structure falls in line. They really do. They, they recognize who the boss is and they adhere to that boss. Mm. Now, I feel like they do because at the end of the day, um, they know where their anger should be directed. So, I mean, my question is, why isn't it directed there? Is it because they're scared? Well, it's also directed there. It's also directed there. Well, I don't see them doxing their bosses. Oh, I'm sure that they are. Like, I I don't think that's that's it. But, well, I kind of do because at the same time, I mean, they're scapegoating. It's displacement for sure. It's displaced anger. But they're scapegoating others who they have they feel sort of power over since they're racialized people. They're I don't women think it's so that. I don't think it's a power like, thing. I think it's more of I a like... I feel... I, yeah, just, it's not... Just, okay, yeah. can I just... Yeah. Um, I, I, think it's, I think it's deeper than just, than just um, being like... Be, as seeing replacement workers and being angry at these replacement workers. I just feel like... There is a power structure that is adhered to, especially in Canada. And I just don't see this. And and maybe it's through because they feel protected through their labor, their union in terms of representation. But there is sort of like this pecking order. And as white males who are unionized, they feel that, and they're right. I mean, I'm not saying that they're wrong in terms of they deserve to be working mm. at their jobs, but they are enforcing that pecking order. That's my point. Sure, I would say that this situation is probably unique in that sense, but I think that I don't think that um, if women were there and it was a predominantly like female-led organization or had predominantly female um, women picketing. That was not proper English. That's fine. It's still early. Um, That it would matter. They would still probably be doxing them. Yeah, I think so too. And that's actually, so part of it too is that, you know, some people have come out and said the reason that folks are having this backlash is actually rooted in sexism because the person behind the campaign is uh, Lana Payne from Unifor, like a, you know, prominent very like visible um leader politician within unifor and that when for example jerry diaz engaged in similar tactics and other uh strikes lock and lockouts um people didn't have the same response but i think the it's context specific and the reality is that you are we're as you know uh, folks in Canadian labor now were advocating for greater protections around 
harassment in the workplace, protection from even domestic violence flowing into the workplace, protection from uh, harassment online that flows into the workplace, protection from clients and third parties that flows into the workplace, and psychological harassment um, are all now considered forms of violence because of the advocacy work that we were doing. So why, on the one hand, do that advocacy work and then uh, engage in those uh, tactics in in the other way and I think a lot of the scab culture comes from a time where people didn't even believe workplace health and safety issues were a thing right like people used to brawl and fight on the picket line like and that was just the culture and like that's fine and I get that there was like I'm not saying that you know I mean there was violence in those spaces on varying degrees right um, I mean, and there's like, you know, the culture of slashing tires of scab workers and whatever. I actually think the slashing tires is still cool to do, but the, the <laughs> Hey man. Okay. Like Windsor union town. You can't like, this is just how it is that there are those taxes. But what I'm saying is like the, like that was like a lot of that stuff originates from a time where people used to fight and punch each other on the like assembly line floor and it wasn't considered a workplace health and violent issue because we didn't have that language then we have that language now and we should be holding ourselves to a similar standard and now we've broadened it to include psychological violence and harassment online and harassment from third parties so why are we engaging in that kind of behavior as well okay but labor like li for example this story is as old as the hills because if you look at for example like labor issues in the 1920s in the states or the turn of the 20th century when workers who were mostly white and ma and well they were all male um went on strike uh, especially i think there was a railroad strike in 1880 or something like that and the strike halted the movement of U.S. railroads, riots would break out because the scab workers that they brought in were either A, immigrants, or B, freed slaves. Mm. So the what I'm trying to say yeah, is enough. that the movement of these pieces and the... when I, I, I remember saying a while ago that um, I think the labor movement would have been a lot stronger and... and and would have lasted longer had those groups got actually gotten together. But there is a history of the owners or the bosses who would pit these groups against mm -hmm, each other mm -hmm. and watch them brawl. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so that's what I'm saying is that is that there is a structure in place and mm -hmm. historical um, events that this is repeating. Yeah, I guess what I just want to make uh, what uh, and I don't disagree with that at all. I guess what I'm saying is the the modern union is actually the champion of a lot of like equity laws and like pay equity and like inclusion in the workplace. A lot of like diversity um, like uh, initiatives that happen in workplaces, health and safety initiatives, sexual harassment and violence prevention programs all start with unions. They are not coming from employers and they're not coming from the government. It comes from union activists and and engagement of like members now in the present context, in the modern context. So why are we clinging to these old tactics that actually now go against the principles that we have today? Well, we have um, we have made unions into the enemy. Yes, no, that's true. So 
I mean, I don't, people are like, unions. And I'm just like, oh, how should, the fuck you are you so getting, lucky. how the fuck are you getting vacation pay, asshole? Yeah, everything. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Everything. Yeah. Sick pay, vacation yeah. pay. Family um, leave. Family leave, yeah. paternity, yeah. maternity leave. Any sort of workplace benefit you got mm-hmm. is because there are actually people who died in the fucking streets to give you that. To form unions to give you that. Now, also, unions have also, you know, in, in at least in the States, at least have been historically a little racist. But, you know, um, so you had racialized unions, but nothing's perfect. Anyway, all this to say that um, we, have, we have demonized unions. I see mm-hmm. an arc here. It goes with the internship thing for sure. It goes with yeah. the internship thing, and it goes with the last, say, 30 or 40 years of this idea of trickle-down economics and Reaganomics and mm. the, like, it's not, they're not divorced from each other. Mm-hmm. Because in order, if you think of Reagan and, and the air... He was a huge union buster. Like yeah, he was yeah. a huge Policy union wise, buster. Yeah. Um, what was it, the air traffic control strike of the 1980s? Mm. I can't remember which year it was. I don't even know if I was alive. Anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, the point is, is that that thinking has become ingrained in a generation, mm-hmm. a generation who now makes laws, mm-hmm. a generation that now runs companies. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I just think that these things aren't divorced. Yeah. And even where unions are present, it's sometimes hard to get people to, f- to participate because unions are just their members. So if you don't run for if you, you know, you don't participate in your local mm-hmm. and you don't like run for positions and you don't be like, you know, join up as staff at one point. There's no real, u- there's no union. The union is the membership. And the more members engaged, the better off it is. But so many people are afraid to put their name um, as part of being a, a union uh, member or activist, even as a, as a steward, let alone as a local president. Um, and it's, um, and it's all part of that, that thinking that's been sort of corrupted by. Uh, you know who's bad for flou- flouting union laws too? The government of Canada. Mm. And that's all. <laughs> I, I know, won't go yeah. further than that. I, yeah. I can't go further than that. Then I'll just be at work. So. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So my rent and receipt this week is a, a story that comes from Slate. So basically, I'm sure I've talked about this show before. Kim's Convenience, mm. the CBC show about oh, so a much. Korean family who owns a convenience store um, by elementary school best friend plays the daughter janet what yeah oh i didn't know yeah. that from kindergarten to third uh, grade we're best her. friends um shout out janet or that's not her name andrea andrea <laughs> <laughs> sorry girl um it 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 takes place in toronto and uh yeah so it's recently got made its way over to netflix america the american version of netflix which is awesome um i was already pumped to see it on canadian netflix but mm-hmm. yeah american netflix and so now you've got these American outlets who are trying to join the cultural conversation around Kim's convenience. And I don't disagree with their take. So this one that I'm talking about in particular basically asks, who is the audience for Kim's convenience? And it's like, okay, you know, if you take the traditional Korean culture and you add in the traditional um, tropes of sitcoms, what do you 
come up with and it's like well you end up with like a watered down version of korean culture but it's funny and it's a little bit kind of there's like all of these tropes and like you know you've got the gregarious stubborn dad you've got the meek little mom and they're playing into the kind of racialized stereotypes sure fine but my question is is that like you know they the author relates it to um, abc's fresh off the boat which famously Eddie Wong sold his book rights to ABC and then was involved in the first season. Um, went, was that, had a lot of conflict with the, the director and the show lead of the show and ended up leaving the project. Um, and it's like, it's a great show. I really like, mm-hmm. like it. Um, it's about an Asian American family and, you know, they're first generation, first generation kids in America and how they navigate that kind of relationship because they moved down to Florida and it's, you know, very white. Um, and so you see a lot of, like, Chinese-ness in that show. Um, I haven't watched the most recent seasons, but, you know, it's it suffers from the same thing, and that was what Eddie Wong was, like, very upset about. He's like, this is not the accurate reflection of what I wanted this show to be. It doesn't accurately refre- reflect my life, and I don't want to be involved in something that's not true to life, in which case should have just made a miniseries, but whatever. Uh, um, so I guess like my question is, is like when we take these kind of racialized stories about Asians or black people or Latinos or whatever, these racialized communities, and we make them into something palatable, quote unquote palatable for a mainstream white audience, what are we expecting to these shows to be? Because I think we should like one, we want to it's great to have these stories on TV and on streaming services because it makes them more accessible. It makes white people more accessible or it makes these cultures more accessible to white people. It normalizes seeing diverse people on screens. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, like it, it gives these racialized people audiences um, something to relate to and something to aspire to in terms of, having a current entertainment regardless of whether it's on screen or writing or directing or what have you. And it just kind of like connects to people in a different way. Um, because you know, you grew up seeing, we all grew up seeing mostly white people on TV. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. and you know, you listen to podcasts and people are like, yeah, like I was growing up and as a Latinx person and I wanted to be white because everyone around me was white. Everyone on TV was white. I wanted to have blonde hair, blue eyes, you know, all that type of uh, North American preference of beauty preferences. And so should these communities be upset that these shows aren't as true to real life as we want them to be? Yes. And Mm. that's the difference between diversity and representation. I'm kind of just stuck I, on the idea that I don't find Kim's convenience isn't representative. It's it's more just like, oh, well, you know, the there's kind of like the tropes of like, oh, like the dad's, you know, a certain way, the mom's a certain way. And like those are Sometimes, true but, things. But that's though. also storytelling. To some extent, yes. people are a bit caricature And I actually find as the show goes on, you see a lot more, like there's like a lot of depth to these characters. I find like the mom to be like, at first she seems a little two-dimensional. And as it goes on, she gets yep. like way more storylines. Um, 
you know, you also have to remember, like, Kim's Convenience started out as a play. Yeah. Um, which I saw. Oh, I, me too. I and cried. I wept so hard cried. in that cinema. Or cinema in that theater. And then it toured again in Ottawa, like, a couple of years later. And I was, like, still so impacted by seeing it the first time. I, like, dragged everybody I knew to see it. Um, but, I mean, what I think is true is that there's inter- interactions with so many other folks. And, like, there's also, like, that very, like toronto thing and i think it maybe it suffers if anything a little bit too from this like overly positive view of like look how diverse and happy we are part of the thing is that they're like oh well if you own a convenience store you work 80 hours a week and they don't talk about how tired and like run down they are and they like he looks tired all the time and i was like like haggard and cranky i was like but that's not interesting tv it's a comedy it's a sitcom it's like a multi-cam like you know it's not supposed to be that here's my thought okay is that when and when I I'm gonna go back to diversity and representation. So here's the thing: these characters have one audience. I I don't know about Kane's convenience. I'm not saying anything specific about that because I've never seen it. Yeah. Um. I know. Will be. Yeah. Um. But my problem is is that these characters are created for white consumption, and in a lot of times. So, for example, did you ever go to see The Kink in My Hair? Mm-mm. I don't know what that is. Okay, so The Kink in My Hair is a play um, by a black woman. I'm going to... I'm not... Am I going to attempt her? <laughs> no, don't. Okay, don't. I won't. Um, anyway, it's it's a really... It's a play that really shows um, about the black experience in Toronto. The bl- everything from the black immigrant experience, the different characters show different sides and attitudes of black people with it work within their community. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't, re- I didn't find it watered down. So I took my mom one year. It was here at the National Arts Center. And I think in a couple years ago mm. and um it what it was sold out mm-hmm. it didn't have to water itself down mm-hmm. for white consumption and i think that there's this assumption that white people won't find actual real racialized stories um entertaining or they won't get it or which which really is dumbing down white people to be honest but um that somehow they cannot relate to people who don't look like them at all and i don't think that's true i think that there are certain universal themes especially in western culture that we can all glam onto yes i agree with that and i would say that that's why crazy rich, crazy rich asians has been so successful um but I think that having a, a like a movie and a play exists in a very particular part mm. period of time, whereas like a sitcom or a TV show runs over multiple seasons, and therefore you have to have many, many different storylines with many, many different characters that go across three, four, or five years, and so to, you have to kind of get get an audience's attention for a longer period of time. But this is my question. Why do we assume that that has to include a watered-down affiliation to whiteness? I 
so I, I agree that there are like those I just I'm just pushing back on this idea that somehow you know what I mean it's I like, don't I, so I, I don't necessarily think that like it's the stories that are watered down I think the stories are largely things that everyone experiences mm-hmm. and can like transcend race um but I think that in a certain format like a yeah, sitcom there's a narrative there's there's, there's things that have to happen yeah there have to be there has to be comic relief and you know if you have racialized people that's probably going to end up being some sort of i don't know person doing something stupid whether or not it's a main character or, or a side character a b-plot character right. or whatever well, what I, well, yeah well what i was gonna say the question my issue isn't like the watering down of things but it's the fact of like does your audience is your audience laughing at the right thing yes because I think like one of and I don't think this is necessarily an issue that Kim's Convenience has. But I'm always like weary when I talk to white people who watch Kim's Convenience because I'm always like, oh, like which parts do you find funny and why? That's what I found in Crazy Rich Asians. People yeah. la- I land people, a very different thing. Yes. I noticed that in the audience, too. And I think people still laugh at accents that they find unusual. They laugh at like the way certain things are said. They laugh at like, you know certain foods that are eaten from like a gross out perspective instead of from like uh you know or from wh- wherever reason that thing is being played for yeah um and and i find that really frustrating so i think like that what kim's convenience does in an interesting way is the intergenerational story of mm-hmm. like um people who've and i think like for me that's and that's what the play was about like you like the ch- the children's relationship to their parents and getting to carve out a different sort of view of their life while and feeling beholden personal narratives yeah, to like tradition but, yeah and feeling be- also to some degree beholden to what their parents expectations were because they came here and like left so much behind for them and that's the traditional immigrant story yeah but i still think that's a really there's still so much that has not been exploited so to speak from that story i think that's like super rich and there's so many different ways you can take it and you see that with jung and janet's like different paths um but you know you could have people watching that and laughing at the like father or mother characters um who don't really get it whereas like when someone when it, like that reminds you of your parents you're laughing for a different reason right yeah and i feel like in this piece in particular the author has like a very unrealistic expectation because he talks about oh well like the Korean accents that um, the parents use like aren't like real Korean accents and they just sound like they're kind of like, yeah, no fucking kidding. Yeah. Like, yeah. what did you fucking expect? Yeah, no, they, yeah. They, and then it was like, playing, I remember him talking about that at the, like after, at Soul Pepper, like after the play and being like, like the, talking about how, you know, like the debate of whether or not you even put on the accent yeah. and whatever. And but, it was like, but it's true to my, also my experience coming up and my parents had that accent. And, and then it goes in, he says, oh, well, when the mom and the dad are in scenes together, they don't talk Korean. <laughs> oh. Actually, sometimes uh, they throw in expressions. Sure, they throw in like, expression, but I like, think he like cusses. We're not going to have an entire scene in <laughs> Korean in yeah. like just on TV, but on like a regular occurrence because yeah. they're in a lot of scenes together. Mm-hmm. I just think that like yeah. there's an unrealistic expectation and I have no issues with the way the show is. And I think yeah. that it for someone to have such a high, high, high expectation for like absolute purity is insane. But it's the same this thing. Is also, so this is also like CBC. Yeah. And CBC has a tendency to um, unify a cultural experience. Uh. Sure. 
Yeah, sort yes of, but no. it's but it's still pretty true to the original play. I don't. I actually was surprised at how much they maintain from the play. I find that really neat. And actually, what I like is like his interactions, not with white people, because I actually find those like really secondary. It's people from other like racialized communities, mm-hmm. and like that cross cultural mm-hmm. exchange, and him just like like he like his own ignorance and like also yeah. like sort of implicit bias and racism around but like, like but brown and black people but, but like he's also like friends with earnest. them and like he's really yeah he just like is kind of clueless sometimes and other times he's like really trying hard or like the 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 gay man who's always visiting the <laughs> store and like anyway it's re- i think it's really really funny i think it's actually so complex and it's not supposed to be a korean show no it's a it's an it's a show of korean people living in a very specific neighborhood in Toronto that is about like it's not it's actually predominantly not white and you see that in the show there aren't that many white characters except where Zhang works and that's it everybody else is a person of color and not necessarily Korean and I I love it for that well it is Toronto but yeah in a specific neighborhood in Toronto yeah which neighborhood was it do you I don't remember okay anyway Erica what do you got for us Okay, so <laughs> my rent and receipts this week is um, based on what happened in Ontario with uh, Doug Ford um, invoking the notwithstanding clause. Can we just get a, a sidebar from our lawyer? Amy, what's the notwithstanding oh, no. clause? <laughs> okay, so the notwithstanding clause is a clause in the charter that says that a government could be provincial, could be federal, could put uh, the certain aspects of the charter on hold to pass legislation that that would or has violated the charter. It's actually not clear whether or not it works only retrospectively to laws that already exist that violate the charter or for new laws. And that's actually a debate about that. But things like your right from, to be protected from search and seizure to your Section 15 right to be free from discrimination on a list of prohibited grounds could all be put on hold for a government to choose to pass a law that actually violates your charter rights. It's meant not to ever be used. And it's only been used once by Quebec to uphold laws that uh, allow for signage to only be in French instead of in both official languages. That is the only time it's been used. And honestly, it should never have been included. So I believe in the 2006 debate, um, the federal debate, Paul Martin versus Stephen Harper, one of the things that Paul Martin was saying or was advocating was removing the mm. notwithstanding clause and nobody knew what the fuck he was talking yeah, about. Yeah. It's just so funny that yeah. now Paul Martin must be like, see, bitches, I told you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, so um, my rent and receipts is I call it stop trying to make Carolyn Mulrooney happen. So when Carolyn Mulrooney first announced her candidacy, For Ontario's 2018 election, she publicly supported official progressive conservative policies on an updated sex sex ed curriculum, a carbon tax, and the rule of law. Now, instead of distinguishing herself as a judicious judicious defender of law and order, she is discrediting, discrediting herself as the enabler of an injudicious premier. Now... Maybe I should just say who Carolyn Mulrooney is, because I, I was like, I was thinking it, Aaron. So for those of you who don't know, she is the daughter of what the um, Toronto Star calls 
a consequential prime minister. So Brian Mulroney is her father. Brian Mulroney was the PM, the prime minister of Canada in the 80s, If I think from 84 to 92, I want to say. I think he was reelected, yeah. Um, he is an architect of NAFTA, mm -hmm. uh, amongst other things. Um, around the, r is it Ronald Reagan, George Bush Senior times for you American listeners. Okay, so she has a legacy and she's definitely benefited from that legacy. She got, she catapulted herself into Ontario politics by running for the premiership in the spring, which she lost to Doug Ford. He included her in his cabinet. She is the attorney general. And now that he has, I would say, recklessly used, invoked this notwithstanding clause for the first time ever in Ontario, uh, how much responsibility does she bear? Mm -hmm. I guess is the question. Mm -hmm. The first question. Mm -hmm. So maybe we should clarify as to why they invoked the notwithstanding clause. Oh, right. So they invoked it. So they there was a decision that came out this week from an Ontario judge around uh, Bill 5, the government's bill to reduce the size of city council in Toronto, um, which was going to be in effect for this election. And it was brought in after the nominations closed. And the judge ruled that to do that was in violation of freedom of expression laws set out in the charter at 2B um, for candidates who are already running um, and had already put their nominations in um, among other among other things so that was part of so that was that judgment it's actually a kind of conflicting judgment I don't fully agree with the reasoning um, and a lot of really smart people and progressive people can debate about whether or not that was the right decision to come to Regardless, um, instead of doing the classy thing of asking, like judicially reviewing the decision to a higher court, uh, Doug Ford announced that in addition to doing that, which seems moot now, he would introduce a bill which was introduced uh, at the end of this week to uh, apply the notwithstanding clause uh, to this to the Bill Five legislation, um, or to reintroduce Bill Five and include and include the notwithstanding clause. Um, and his state and it, the issue wasn't so much that he would necessarily like it was partly it's the use of the notwithstanding clause, but it's also what he said. He said, the judge is appointed, but I am elected and I have a, and who is he to kind of to tell me it is ridiculous to say that. And it is ridiculous for a lawyer like Carolyn Mulroney to stand as the AG, she's the Attorney General of Ontario, that's her cabinet appointment, to stand behind Doug Ford and say, yeah, I totally agree and I'm going to put my stamp as the AG and it's going to be like the AG's case against the against whoever is going to file a complaint about them using this or file an appeal of this decision. Yeah. But, uh, uh, so I, my, before Carolyn Mulroney made a statement about this, I was like, oh, well, she obviously like, cause she wasn't at the announcement. Mm -hmm. It was like the deputy yeah. AG. Yeah, people who did there. read a lot into that. Yeah. And so I was like, well, obviously she doesn't support him because if she supports him, like her career as a lawyer is fucking over. Did it ever begin? I well, mean, that's true. She barely, she, she sure. barely fucking, I have issues. Okay. And let me tell you my first issue. This woman <laughs> swooped the fuck in 
okay? Had never been in politics, had never run for anything. She didn't work, to, in my mind, she, I know she started a charity, but her community work, her... Even her legal career... Her legal career... Is limited. ...was limited. And she was sold to us to by elites as, as being more than competent mm -hmm. um, as being some leader somehow. And I'm like, where? Mm -hmm. I remember being on a, on a radio program. I think it was like 580 or something AM. And with uh, the, I think the head of Ottawa Life magazine. And he was going on about how qualified she was and how, you know, you know, Doug Ford will never win and there's no way and how great she was and what an honor it was. It was just too much for me. Mm -hmm. It was just elites just, just loving each other. And I was just like, I remember thinking, okay, we'll see. Mm -hmm. Now, I didn't say much because at that time, I didn't really know much about her. I didn't know there was not much to know. Mm -hmm. But because she operated in the correct circles i'm supposed to believe that she's automatically merited for this position seriously like this is the kind of when i say canada is is an oligarchy this is what i mean okay that's my initial thought okay so secondly yeah, you just go. You, I know you got out, you're very passionate about this. I, she is one of my faves. Remember when we define my faves? Like, really, I don't like them at all. Let's not forget that she came in the wake of Patrick Brown and their need for a woman in as a figurehead. Mm -hmm. So she just came at the right time. And this is another thing that pisses me off. When the people who want to promote diversity are elite white people you have to be concerned because they will pick up the first person like them who looks who has a different face or a different gender or a different sexuality or whatever but still operates like them and put them in front of the public and rah 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 them like they're somebody she has done nothing to prove to anybody that she should be attorney general I think she should return her law degree, but that's just me. <laughs> I think Harvard should ask for it back. I really do. She should be booted out of Well, law she society. went to Harvard. Well, if she didn't fucking go to Harvard, I'd be like, what's wrong with you? You're a pre-M's daughter. <laughs> like, come on. It's not a hard stretch. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that uh, Keller Mulroney is overrated and useless. Um... And that's really all I had to say on that topic. <laughs> Boom. I, I just, you know, but the consequences. I also remember being told that we should mm. elect Doug Ford because he will have people around him mm -hmm. who will. Yep. Now, first of all, that's a flawed logic. Mm -hmm. Okay. If you, if you can't trust the dude that you're voting for to be. If you need him handled by other people, there's That's, a problem in it's that. It's like logic. the Donald Trump anonymous like letter thing. It's like, yeah. oh, don't worry, he's surrounded by good people. We'll protect you. It's like that's not how this works at all. Yeah, you're supposed to get your direction from him. This is not. This is not like an autocratic rule. Like, get out of here. And why is it that it's the women who are supposed to handle him? 
because when people were saying that, I heard names like Christine Elliott, yeah. Carolyn Murphy, Lisa McLeod, all of whom have stayed silent through this whole fiasco. Well, Lisa McLeod is not entirely. Well, yeah, Lisa, Mc- <laughs> Lisa McLeod is not silent. No, and but she yeah, is towing to the she's line. Towing she hasn't the line. been the voice of reason on a lot no. of these things. And. Um, in the way that you would have thought she would have intervened, but she she is the mouth she is the mouthpiece. She's a very visible mouthpiece, more so than Carolyn Mulberry. She's been. the one who actually gives it legitimacy, if anything. Yeah, because yeah. it's she's, unfortunate. Yeah. yeah, yeah, she's like the Paul Ryan. <laughs> there you go. Oh, a reasonable voice who like kind of says supports the the leader, but yeah. kind of also says nothing. Yeah. Yeah, sent yeah. out to uh, comfort Ottawans when he says, you guys are going to be next. And she's like, no, no, don't worry. It won't be us. I just have a problem with um, with women being okay to handle the leader, but not okay with to being be leader. leader. Yes, that's and a very good so point. So all of you people who were like, oh, well, I'm not going to vote for Andrea Horvath or Kathleen mm. Wynne because they're women and they're irrational or they're emotional or they're a bitch, or whatever, fuck you, and I hope you rot in hell, because mm-hmm. this is your fault. Yeah. Yes. This is why elections matter. It doesn't matter what level of government. This is why elections matter. Exactly. So now we're stuck with this fuckwad and all his enablers. I want to see this re-election. <laughs> oh, my God. God help us all. All right, so that does it for this week's episode. Uh, don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter at Bad and Bitchy, on Instagram at Bad and Bitchy Pod, on Facebook slash Bad and B Podcast. Email us, uh, send us love mail. You can send us hate mail, I guess, and we'll uh, just delete it. That's cool. Um, actually, we'll probably also like d- uh, laugh at it, so maybe we'll read, you, read it online. And uh, you guys, don't forget that we are involved with the Now What Ottawa campaign, which is fighting for making gender equality an issue in our upcoming city election. So uh, follow us on social media at Now What Ought with two Ts. We are hosting a mayoral debate on October 2nd. Uh, you can donate to our Kickstarter. And uh, don't forget to pressure your actual mayor, Jim Watson, into attending the debate because that coward has not yet responded. And... Uh, Tweet him, email him, because that's your fucking right as a resident. That does it. Bye. Bye. Bye.